This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 32 for Thursday, March 23rd, 2006. Your questions, Steve's answers. Hello, Steve Gibson. Leo Laporte hey, Leo. in Northern California. Steve Gibson in Southern California. And we meet in the middle via Skype. Which is really working well for us. It yeah. is. It's remarkable. Yeah. You It know, ha- has something to do with the fact that uh, uh, you have spent some money on a good high PR 40 mic and an M-Audio interface. Oh, I have a very nice microphone. Yes, and yes. I do, too. <laughs> Bob Heil says, uh, hello, by the way. He's going to be at NAB, and uh, they're throwing a big party this week, and or I guess it's next week. It's so funny. I, I watched Letterman, and he's got the the, the high PR forty there, and he's banging it with his pencil all the time, and it just oh. bugs me to see him like <laughs> whacking on it with his pencil. It's like David, that's the way stop David that. is. He has a mic. Yeah. They use a, a sure uh, mic for his um, audience warm up because you know he comes out before the show, right? And he does an audience warm up, and it's on a long cable, and it's all dented up. You know, it has the uh-huh. round ball, the, the the wire cage on the front, on the top of right. it. Right. It is messed up. And, and I thought, why is his mic all dented up? And then I saw around, he hits the, <laughs> he bangs it around. Of course, that's all. But he's, he's, that's part of his act is like banging on this stuff. Right. It's pretty funny. Right. So we talked about crypto last week. And I know we want to tie up some loose ends before we uh, head into uh, questions and answers. Well, yeah, there's a couple things. First of all, people are wondering whatever happened to the open VPN guide that I have promised. Um, it's on the way. Um, I haven't forgotten it. I haven't. I mean, it's like my number one thing to be working on. I had a bunch of, you know, year end tax stuff to deal with, you know, financial on over on my own GRC business side. Um, but also I'm working with a very talented developer in Russia um, who's got a bridging driver and we're basically coming up with a custom solution for OpenVPN, which solves a number of problems that dramatically improve the robustness of its use and uh, and make it much easier to configure. So I haven't been sure how that was going to proceed. Um, you know, he, he's got other consulting he's doing. I've got like a, an 18-page template laid out. I'm fleshing them out. You, you've, in fact, seen a couple of the graphics that I, that I yeah, sent you, Leo. Good, so. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's anyway, I just want to let people know I haven't forgotten about it. It's going to happen um, and it's going to be just a tremendous reference once it comes together. But um, anyway, it's it's on the way. <laughs> He's working on it. Folks. I'm working on it. Patience. Okay. We had um, we had a guy referring to last week's discussion of remember you asked me, Leo, the like, when was that secret decoder ring kind of idea first used? You know, who did it first? And I don't know that this is accurate, but but someone said that Julius Caesar. That's right. Did use it to communicate, you know, ba- basically used a simple transposition cipher where letters were shifted some number of places, which is exactly what, you know, two concentric rings do, do uh, in order to communicate with his generals. That's why you they know? sometimes call it a Caesarian cipher. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's pretty old. In fact, I bet it predates that even. I mean, we know that he used it, but I bet it predates that even. I mean, it's, an, yeah, it's kind of an obvious thing once you have an alphabet. Yeah. And, or if you asked your gurus to come up with a way of, you know, easily encrypting data that a you know that a general who's not too clueful would be able to decrypt i mean it couldn't be too complicated or some guy on horseback wouldn't be able to to figure it out so some barely literate guy on yeah horseback. exactly all right okay well now um we had a, we're, we're going to announce today the very first and i'm very excited about this 
um, Security Now puzzler brain teaser that relates to cryptography that that comes from something last week. Um, a guy wrote from the United Kingdom, uh, Roger Roger Cuthbert. He said, "Hey Steve, I had an idea about one-time pads." He said, "There, there's an old, I don't know if it's a riddle or a trick or what, where you want to send somebody something securely using um, a padlock that he doesn't have the the key to. So you put it in a box and you lock it with your own padlock." You send it to him. He adds his padlock to that. So now the box is doubly locked. He sends it back to you. You take off your padlock. So now it is still locked only with his. And then you send it back to him. He takes off his padlock and is now able to open the box. So what was so clever about about Roger thinking about this is he says, you know, why couldn't you do this with one-time pads? You have a one-time pad. He has a different one-time pad. So you encrypt your message using your one-time pad, send it to him. He encrypts that encrypted message with his one-time pad and sends it back to you. So only you, only he could in go ahead. Well, okay. So so now you decrypt the the one-time pad that he encrypted with your one-time pad. Yeah. Now the message is only encrypted with his. It's half encrypted, you, right? Yeah. Um, then you send it back to him. He decrypts it with his one-time pad, mm -hmm. and now it's back into plain text. So essentially, every transport of the message was encrypted, either by yours, by both of yours, or by only his. And neither of you had to share your one-time pads with each other. And what's wrong with that? I mean, doesn't isn't that like a really cool solution for sending an encrypted message? This eliminates the problem of exchanging one-time pads, which is the weak link in a one-time pad system. Exactly. Hmm. So, so I think so if I you draw a picture of this, it will become clearer. Well, yeah, or if, if you think of it using that lockbox analogy, you know, the idea, well, and, and what's, what's cool about this, the encryption that we've talked about, we, we, I'm going to run back real briefly uh, a little summary of, of last week. You know, the idea we, we talked about exclusive or, where you, you take a byte of data and you exclusive or it with a, a, a random byte. Another way to think about that that I didn't specifically say, but it sort of makes it clear, is that you have sort of a – think of having a stream of bits of your message, and you are – and what, what the exclusive or does is it, it conditionally or it optionally or maybe inverts a bit of your message. So basically, you are – when you XOR your message with a, a stream of random bits, basically you're, you're – randomly inverting your message bits and what's cool is that you can do the same thing again if you if you re-xor with the same random bits then you're going to flip the ones that were flipped before back to where they were restoring the original message right now that's why this idea of being able to like double encode a message works because your pad bunch of random bits mm -hmm. then you send it to the other guy he uses his different pad to flip a different set of bits 
you he sends it back to you you use your pad to again flip your specific set of bits and then when it goes back to him and he does it a second time it flips everything back the way they actually all really were so you could sort of see how it might work mm-hmm. now if if someone's confused about this xor thing the we could fall back to this notion of a ring remember we initiated this whole dialogue talking about the secret decoder ring where you you from from a given letter you go some number of of letters or symbols forward to encode and then you go some number of symbol that same number of symbols backwards to decode so so in the same way that an xor can be used reversibly you could also just use addition and subtraction on the ring where you take the random number and add it to the symbol to get a new one and then for example if he did the same thing then you've sort of both added your own random numbers then you when it comes back to you you subtract your random number the same random number that you had added before and then when you send this back to him he subtracts his same random number which will bring you back to the original symbol so anyway that's what we're going to leave people with for one week why uh, does, so you're saying it doesn't work there's a flaw no i'm not saying I, i'm saying maybe this is really cool oh okay so maybe it works maybe not people should think about it think? and right. and and decide what they think and we'll have the answer at the beginning of next week's <laughs> show you are sneaky okay uh, Q and A time. Well, I've got the questions. Are you, okay. you have the answers? I have. I hope so. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, first, uh, uh, two related questions touching on the same uh, very important conceptual issue. You mentioned that 128-bit website encryption is safe to use and near impossible to crack. But if that's the case, why is it copy protection is so easily broken? What's the difference between that? And uh, website encryption is TrueCrypt or any other crypto program open to uh, easy crack. Is and before you answer that, let me just uh, uh, mention that in your introduction to the cryptography episode a couple of weeks ago, you said uh, that DRM was doomed, and I agreed with you and could always be cracked. But then you, you know you keep saying un- uncrackable voice over internet or uncrackable email. What? Huh? Yeah, yeah, that's huh? that's a it's a really good point, and it's it's a the, the reason I wanted to. To present these questions is that it, there's a fundamental concept here which is crucial for people to get and that is that the reason DRM can be cracked is that the device which knows how to decrypt the encrypted data is right there and it's doing it in front of you in order for you to get the content which is being displayed or listened to or whatever and similarly, so it has the private key somewhere well, in it, it has it, it, stored it, away. It has whatever. I mean, even I mean whatever it is, it knows how to how, how to bring it back into usable form. And copy protection is the same way. If something is copy protected, it's got to be unprotected for the computer to run it. So when it's running in your machine, it's in a runnable state. Right. That is, whatever it is that's been done has been undone to it in order for it to be usable. And that's the key. So, so, the, so what's different with, with website encryption is 
and we'll get into this in in the for, in the coming weeks here when we explain how symmetric key and asymmetric key and public key and all this stuff all interrelate but the idea is that you're you're encrypting information which is going somewhere else um, and and you'd nowhere in between in the middle no eavesdropper has the 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 sufficient information to do the decryption but when it's coming to a device which is going to run copy protected software or display uh, DRM data that device has to know how to display it and so the point is anything can be reverse engineered mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's you know anything I mean this is how DVD encryption just got cracked immediately was was a, a very clever engineer figured out what the DVD players were doing in order to do the decryption he said oh here's how it's done a, a very I mean, clever 16 year old engineer <laughs> yeah they didn't have to be that clever because they're doing and so he wrote DCSS which reverses that process, allows you to kind of do the same thing as a right. DVD player would do. But 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 for example, if you're just exchanging a like you, you have a, an opaque token that someone has given you, it's like here, hold on to this and give it back to me. It's sort of like a, a web browser cookie. You have you have nothing to go on to decrypt that. You have no traction. You know you don't you don't have in your computer the code which is going to turn that into something that makes sense instead you're just giving it back if right. it's been given to you makes and you, you just have no traction yeah eric bolt writes from uh, hotmail a hotmail account i have a wireless connection enabled but it isn't connected to a wireless access point or another computer for, for example i'm at work with my laptop uh he's hardwired into the land you know rj45 plugged in there his wireless connection is in is still enabled but he's not using it. Is there is there a security threat there? Could somebody get on his computer through that? Yes, platform? yes, yes, yes. And in fact, there is a there is a known there are several known hacks. Um, wireless can work in two different modes in in infrastructure mode where you have a, a the 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 traditional type of access we've been talking about where the infrastructure is at a wireless access point or base station the alternative way to operate is called ad hoc where for example two laptops are able just to talk to each other without using a instead of like talking through the access point they are able to connect directly windows xp's default mode is both to allow both infrastructure and ad hoc and there have been reports that are confirmed of people on airplanes whose laptops are being used getting hacked on the fly, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, Even though they're not on the Internet, just because their airport's still on. Yes, they're because they're, they're, they're an airport. I sh that's a very Apple specific thing. Uh, Wi-Fi is still on. Exactly. So yeah. so it is the case that a, a computer, even if it's as, as it was in in Eric's case here, hooked into a LAN with an RJ45 hardwire, if his radio is on and the computer is configured to allow ad hoc operation, and that's something you can change in Windows, but it's really better, and this is what I always do, is just to turn that off when you're not really using it. I mean, it saves battery power, for one thing, mm -hmm. and it's just sort of a, it's a good, secure practice to shut down any radios that you don't actually need to be using at any time because it's it's an, an exposure. If you had WAP turned on the, or I'm sorry, WPA turned on um, on your 
client side would then that you are it? you are going to be safe yes. you are safe then okay yes. so if you don't want to turn it off if you if you're using you should just be using wpa well wait a minute though because you you can't have it turned on all the time because otherwise you wouldn't on to uh oh i don't know that's too confusing <laughs> for me i mean if in other words i don't turn it on you can't turn it on for all connections because otherwise you wouldn't be able to get on when you got to starbucks so it's only when you're connecting with a, a wireless access point. That's that, that that's a good point, and yeah. it may be that, for example, someone has has had to take turn their turn, turn their security off when they were doing something else, when they were like away from their home, in order right. to use so an the, open the, connection. The security isn't really blanket for your any connection into your card. It's just saying when you connect with this access point, use security. But your right. but your card is kind of promiscuous. If you want to use that term. Jason in Orlando writes, I just ran into something I've never noticed before. I'm a college student in Orlando and I'm on a school PC, still using Internet Explorer. They're slowly making Firefox available, but not yet here in mine. I logged into Gmail, checked my mail, then went to another site. After browsing for a few minutes, I headed back to Gmail, you know, mail.google.com to see if I had a response. And it went right there. I didn't have to pass muster. I didn't have to give it a login or a password or anything. It just opened my inbox. I closed the window, opened a new one, headed back to Gmail, and then I had to log in again. He said, I simulated the thing a few more times and realized that if I didn't close the window, I could always just go right back in without a password. I can't remember how many times I left a terminal at school and just clicked the homepage button for the next user. Uh, and he said, I'm going to try this at home. Is this something to be aware of? Well, actually, I, I think that's a very useful bit of caution for anyone using web browser-based email. What what his what, what he's seeing is that he's got his... His Google Mail account um, configured to, by default, just sort of stay open. He wasn't explicitly clicking logout, and on the nor on any of those pages, when you're in in Google Mail and many other web-based mail systems, you can explicitly log out. That invalidates your your login for that session. It's usually he was called a session cookie to to say, so it checks the session cookie says, oh, he's still here. And well, exactly. Right in, in, in fact, we will be talking about, about cookies also in the future because there are session cookies and much more persistent cookies. And you can you can tell um, Google Mail that you want to stay logged in on the current machine unless you log out. But even if you don't have that option set, unless you explicitly log out and you keep that browser session open, which is what was happening in this case, you're still logged in. Right. So it, it's a useful cautionary note that people should explicitly log out whenever they're using a public terminal. Many sites, I think Google Mail included, uh, have the, a little check mark under the box saying public terminal login or not oh i'm not sure if what that's saying is don't save any session cookies uh or if it's saying don't save any long-term cookies yeah google mail doesn't have that it does that not I've do seen. that okay you know, yeah huh uh, many i've seen it before on many sites huh. where it's saying is, is this a private uh machine in which case just for convenience we'll maintain your login but if it sounds not, like yeah, it, it it does sound like they've they may have taken extra measures. Like for example, maybe it times out after a much shorter period of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have that on my Fastmail account. Let me just. Yeah, I thought for sure that Google would do that. I mean, any it, it would seem to be sensible. Anyway, that's a good thing. So, what your recommendation is? Close the browser, or better yet, just sign oh, no. out. Ex explicitly click sign the the yeah the log off or log out link before you close the browser window because you just you know you want to make sure you, your log on credentials have been with that remote server. Very very important. All right. Um, 
And I'm just looking through the Google settings, and I don't, I don't see anywhere that you can... Uh, there, there must be somewhere where you can say, look, don't save anything, but maybe not. It is a convenience. Alan Akins asks, are there any with using PPTP, that's point-to-point tunneling protocol, which uh, Windows uses as its VPN uh, protocol? I currently use DDWRT with a PPTP server enabled, and I was wondering if there are any security issues with it. Is it also okay to open... The uh, PPTP port, which is 1753, to a Windows computer and set up the Windows computer to accept incoming connections for a VPN. Well, he asks, are there any security issues? Um, That's a huge question, of course. (laughs) There's no right answer either. Um, Okay. Opening a port to Windows means that it will accept incoming traffic, incoming connections. And we've seen... I mean, time after time after time, buffer overruns in Windows machines. And so you're, if you, anytime you open a port to a Windows machine, you are hoping and praying that there isn't some known or unknown exploit that would allow that buffer overrun, if there was one, to be, to be taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. I mean, as we know, you put a, an unprotected Windows machine on the internet, and it's just hosed in in a matter of minutes. It's it, it's the really good thing that Service Pack Two for XP did for us is it they've got, they've got their own little firewall running all the time. So, for example, for him to open this port, he'd have to explicitly allow traffic through the firewall. It's that firewall which is responsible for you know making Service Pack Two of Windows XP a much better machine. Now the 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 one the one architectural security problem is that point to point tunneling protocol does not have strong authentication that is it's very possible for if somebody was determined and wanted to for someone else to be able to log on to his machine remotely which is certainly not what he wants it's microsoft just has, has tried several times they've strengthened their algorithms but they just don't they don't want to take the step to to uh, provide strong authentication because it's not as simple as not having strong authentication. It's one of the things, for example, that makes OpenVPN a little trickier to configure because OpenVPN, you know, our chosen solution has, I mean, industrial strength, military strength authentication. Nobody who doesn't have your credentials will be able to log on to your system. That's not true point tunneling protocol. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So your recommendation would be not to open that port and uh, and... What I, I, not I guess I would coming connections. I would call that a security issue. Yeah, you know, and he was saying, "Are there any security issues?" Yes, um, you created and, one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I if he really wants to use point-to-point tunneling protocol, see, he's got a router, and I guess it's maybe a little safer if he uses his router as his endpoint that is connects using PPTP to his router. That would get him into his network, as opposed to trusting the point-to-point tunneling protocol server on Windows, mm. which just, you know, always makes me uh, think twice. Right. Are, are there any particular flaws you know of right now, or are we, we in between? No. We're in between flaws. Yep. Um, and, of course, no one knows about a flaw until oh, right. we all know about it. Right. So well, and you can almost, I mean, I think with any software, you can pretty much say, I don't think you could ever say that a software is guaranteed flawless. Um you, you write software, you know. It's just, it's too it's complex. Very, it's very, very hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, unless we're writing in ADA or something, <laughs> which nobody does. Does or, anybody write in ADA anymore? 
I think it's gone. That was something, a language the Department of Defense uh, proposed based on Pascal that was intended to be a secure language, you know, much harder to uh, create bugs in. Uh, and support big projects and right. team building and all right. these other things. Right. Yeah, and, uh, it, was, it was just a big goose. <laughs> it was fashionable. But yeah. no, nobody uses it. Of course, I'm talking to the guy who programs an assembly language, <laughs> which probably is a good secure way to do it. You, at least you know what's going on. Allen in Des Moines writes, if the limiting factor for crypto security is computing power... How about distributed processing? Things like, you know, SETI at home or the folding at home. Couldn't some Trojan horse virus infect millions of PCs and have them all act as processing units for a crypto? Wait a minute. This is too good an idea. I'm not sure I want to read this question. (laughs) Acting as processing units for a crypto cracker and get around the processing power requirement. You could create a pretty massive supercomputer, couldn't you? Yeah, well, in fact, that's what the SETI at home project does, of course, is they're they're borrowing everyone's screensaver time while their machines are on doing all this number crunching signal processing of signals received from outer space. You know, basically a massive distributed computer whose overall computing power is is extremely high. Um, A number of people suggested this idea that is, you know, because one of the things we talked about last week was that, you know, it's only a function of computing power. If if you had long enough or fast enough, brute force attacks can function. The thing that renders that um, infeasible is the scale of difficulty as the number of bits that are, are used in the key increase. I've got a table here, uh, and I'll just give you a a, a sense for how quickly these numbers get big. And and the point is that, for example, we glibly talk about 128-bit key, but it's it's not, for example, twice as hard as a 64-bit key. It's it's the squared as hard. It's sick, you know. It, it's it's the total number of combinations squared more difficult. So, for example, if a given if a given computer at a given speed took um, two seconds to crack a 40-bit key, that same computer would take 35 hours to, to crack a 56-bit key, Wow! one year to crack a 64-bit key, 70,000 years to crack a key, 10 to the 14th years to crack a 112-bit key, and 10 to the 19 years to crack a 128-bit key. So you'd have to get a lot of computers in your little cluster to solve that one. <laughs> yeah, there aren't that many computers. I mean, so, so, my, so my point is that's the, that's the rate at which computing the, the computing burden for brute force uh, cryptographic cracking, that's the rate at wow. which it scales as key length goes up. And for example... Just for the hell of it, I'm using 256-bit keys in my OpenVPN system because why Why not? not? I mean, now we have computers that can handle that length with no trouble at all. And I mean, Lord knows how many years that. I mean, it it it, it's the point where you know your home will be will be attacked and ripped apart by the by explosion someone. of the sun <laughs> exactly yep. you can stop worrying about being your your encryption uh, your, yes. your message being stolen worry about the sun exploding because that's only a few yes. billion years off yes and yeah i use uh, uh, i just uh, created a new key for uh, my pgp uh, signing and i use a 4096 uh, bit key 
Well, hold on. Now, that'll be the public key, which is different that's than the, big, bulk, the, right. the bulk crypto. Right. Yes, the but that's, that, that's, right. that's way big, Leo. Yeah. And, but, but, and it used to be that you, could choo- you would choose a smaller one because of the pe- com- computational penalty, but you don't have that anymore. Right. This, these things, are, the computers are so fast. Um, so is the default key still 128-bit uh, or... 128-bit is really safe, and that's what SSL is using okay. for, for its crypto. Well, and, no, I mean, no. it's, it's you know, 10 to the 14 years we're right, safe. Right, right. No matter how many, you know, SETI computers we, we commandeer for, for crypto. And notice that all that work would only crack one key. <laughs> if you did all that, you would crack one key. As we're going to be learning in coming weeks, the new technologies, which use public key technology, sort of piggyback um, per session symmetric keys like we've been talking about. So they're changing all the time. And in fact, I've got OpenVPN set up, and this is what I'll be explaining to people, how it's changing the key automatically, periodically, even during a connection. Wow. So it's just it's just give up. I mean, you, yeah. just, you just no longer have to worry about the security of this stuff. And, and if you update your key every year, you're probably, you're probably safe. Andy from Chicago, Illinois... Uh, writes, uh, boy, we got to get, we got quite a few here. We're going to start moving a little faster. My ISP, Cyberonic, recently switched back- backbones and issued new IP addresses to subscribers. What I've learned since is that the range of IPs I'm now in was recently in the Bogon <laughs> address space. It's just, uh, he says a new vocabulary word for him. This is causing big issues with anything going upstream webmail, FTP, webdav, and some sites have trouble loading images. I've contacted the admins of some of the sites. We've come to the conclusion the packets are being blocked somewhere in route. I'm not certain where to even start looking for solutions. Any ideas? Well, this is really an interesting question. I thought it was it was really fun. First of all, um, a bogon for, you know, he was talking about this being a new vocabulary word. A bogon is the measurement of bogosity so or or bogusness so it, it's like it's the quantum you, you can have so many bogons worth of bogosity uh you know technically um i have said before that I, a we're not running out of ips on the internet and that there's even a lot of ip space still not being used remember that uh, that, that we've talked about how uh for example Anything beginning with a 10, you know, 10 dot anything is is we know is reserved for private networks. So that's a bogon. So, yes, that is one of the bogons. What happens is Internet routers are configured to drop any traffic which is is destined for the so-called the bogon space, which is a term that that the network engineers use. Get this 40 percent of our current internet IP space is Bogon. Wow. 40%, 40% is non-routable, unused space. So that's the 10 dot, the 128, or 192.168. Uh, well, in, in, in fact, even looking, even looking at just, yes, exactly, even looking at just the first byte, anything beginning with a 0, a 1, a 2, a 5, a 7, 23, 27, 31, 36, 37, 39, 42, uh, 48, 50, 77, 78, 79, 89 through 123, um, 127, which of course is a no, like the local host range, and then 173 through 187 and 197. If All these- of those are just they don't they they don't exist. They're bogons. How did Andy get a bogon IP address? Well, what happens is he he must. What happened was someone 
somehow convinced ICANN to give up one of these uh. big networks. The problem is, all over the Internet, there are routers configured with this Bogon space and firewalls and all kinds of equipment that just have these, like, hard blocked. Yeah, don't, don't so, let anything in from that address because it's not a real address. So Exactly. So, so what, what, essentially, the problem is that a, a recently allocated IP, a IP region is no longer Bogon space, but it's taking the rest of the Internet some length of time to get the message, to get the news. Meanwhile, equipment will be just be dropping his traffic, and there's nothing he can do about it. Wow. I mean, it's, it's annoying. Uh, wow. So has this happened frequently, that, that Bogon uh, IP addresses are reassigned to the real world? No, um, not frequently at all. I mean, uh, the, the, see why. the people who keep these things allocated and assigned, I mean, these IPs are just precious treasure on the Internet. And, of course... We, as we know, the, the uh, emergence of NAT technology that allows corporations to run many computers on few public IPs and even individuals. You know, you know, I've got one public IP on my cable modem and I can run a whole network, as do all of our listeners. So, mm-hmm. you know, of many computers. So the, the pressure has been hugely reduced thanks to NAT routers. And so... You know, there are there's like 40 percent of the net is still unallocated. So you can you can appeal to uh, uh, ICANN and uh, the RIRs and say, oh, look, this is you know, we're using this. And please, you got to make it. Yes, you have to make a really good case. But, and if you make a really good you still case, have all this legacy hardware that's not going to be updated. And you're going to have some pain for a while yeah. while while network administrators all over the net go, oh, look, there, you know, this is no longer a Bogon uh address on uh, in the IP space. We have our first question from the Amish country. We don't get a lot of questions from the Amish country. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Just a joke. Do they have computers? <laughs> Just I, a joke. I, I know. <laughs> Dave Solon in Amish country, uh, Mannheim, PA, writes, I have a question for you regarding hotel lands. I was recently at a hotel where you could hook up to their cable modems for free access. The cable coax line from its TV was split, so one line went to the TV, one to the cable modems. They actually had a cable modem in each room. Isn't that neat? <clears throat> I'm guessing this hotel didn't have their own LAN, and this might be a little safer than plugging into a hotel where you simply plug into their network. Is that true? Yes, it is true. I had never heard of a hotel giving every room its own cable modem. Now, but- I should say that I have heard of hotels doing this. They, don't, they aren't actually doing that. They, they have their own private network, which provides both TV and data, and they're putting decoders in the room. Ah, uh, okay. I think it's more um, how, likely what was happening. Uh, even so, it, if they're using uh, str- uh, traditional DOCSIS-style cable modems, that is, you know, the, the universal standard for, for cable modem technology, that is an encrypted signal over the coax. So, there'd be, so that, that modem would be kind of a barrier to uh, anybody trying to look at you. Exactly. So, so the things we've talked about, the dangers we've talked about before of, of people easily, for example, sniffing your traffic and playing games, I can't say for sure that they would be defeated because you'd have to really look at the network to see, for example, how ARP traffic was being handled within that network. It might be that, the, that, that these cable modem-like things are just really bridges, which are bridging the, the LAN through the coax segment. That's a possibility, but it is 
potentially more secure than just a regular, you know, 10 base T style land that we see in most hotels. Hmm. That's an interesting uh, Yeah, I thought it was cool. Point. In fact, staying on that subject, uh, another listener has asked if uh if I want a secure connection in a hotel, can I just carry my NAT router uh, with me? <laughs> I like that one too a lot because it was like, well, we've talked so much about how how secure NAT routers are, that is what what security they provide. So, someone thinking about, okay, hotels are a problem, how about if I just use my own NAT router? The problem is that would secure you sort of within your own room where you're already secure, but your traffic then would still be communal on the public side of the NAT router. So you would, unfortunately, it provides no security from like inter-room eavesdropping sorts of things, which is the problem in a hotel setting. Um, One thing it does give you, though, of course, is a very good firewall in the same way that a NAT router always blocks unsolicited incoming traffic. So it would it would potentially firewall your computer if you didn't already have a software firewall. It'd be useful for that, but it wouldn't completely protect you from, you know, the, the types of inter-room LAN problems that we've talked about in recent weeks. Hmm. Uh, in, fact, in fact, I do that because when I go to, uh, I carry my airport express, I'm in a hardwired hotel to give myself uh Kind of my in, in in room airport, and I use so WPA. you can sit on you can sit on the bed with your yeah, laptop exactly. and so forth. Yeah, um, and I use WPA, but it's important to remember this. Once it gets on the other side of that router, it's just unencrypted, plain old traffic, just like anything right. else. That's why right. I use Hotspot VPN. Thanks to yeah. you, exactly. Uh, Pat Deary and many other sharp eared listeners have mentioned during episode twenty nine. Uh, that was our Ethernet insecurity episode. You said you said Steve. I did. I'm pointing at you. That ARP cache poisoning occurs when a malicious computer sends out a false ARP response to two other computers, making the malicious computer the man in the middle. My question is: Do the two computers just accept the responses blindly, even if they didn't send out a request? Couldn't this be avoided if the two computers in question only accept responses for requests they send? That was a neat idea, and many listeners had it. That is, the idea being that uh, the way ARP is implemented today, it's trivial for a malicious machine to send unsolicited responses, ARP, ARP responses, to computers to cause them to change the MAC address with the IP um, that it was previously associated with in order to, for them to send their traffic through it. And so people said, hey, wait a minute, what if computers just ignored responses that they didn't send? Well, that kind of could work, but then you you get a a problem of, of the bad guy responding first before the good guy to a valid ARP request with with their response. Mm-hmm. So and then and then you would ignore the second one, but then you've got the problem of not being able to detect IP collisions on a LAN. You want to be able to detect when two machines have the same IP. I'm sure Leo, you know, with all the networking you've done over time, you you've seen the little Windows dialog yeah. box that comes up and says, wait a minute, there's another machine with the same IP somewhere. Right, right. So so the the problem is really not tinkering with the protocol, but the problem is a lack of authentication. And the right way to solve it, we'll be talking about it downstream. There are some way, some some forthcoming specs. Um, I think it's 802.1x uh, begins to do this, where we get authentication of endpoints on a LAN, which will begin to solve this problem. And that's like the right way of doing it. Instead of sort of trying to play with a protocol, then you get all kinds of weird side effects and things break in bad ways. Okay. 
but it's, it would kind of be like a router rejecting stuff that didn't initiate. Right. It's very much the same sort yeah. of concept, yeah. yeah. But there are issues with. Kevin, well, who- the problem is the, uh, the 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 problem in this case is because there's no authentication, you don't know that the first answer you get is not the bad guy. Oh, that's right, of course. So we can just yep. interrupt. So, yep. Excuse me, I'll take this from here. <laughs> I I got this. I got it. Yep. Yep. Uh, let's see. Um, Kevin Hooper writes from his Hotmail account. Uh, I had some suspicious activity yesterday. When I loaded drivers and for a USB uh, video capture device, and then Microsoft anti-spyware flashed a LSP, layered service provider warning. That sounds pretty dire. Subsequent behavior of zone alarm only increased my anxiety. It disabled it spontaneously. What's that? What's an LSP? Particularly when you're talking about a USB uh, video capture device. And what should a user look for when using a layer inspector like the add-on from AdAware? I don't even well, we know what he's talking about, but you're the spyware king, so I'll let you... Well, um, a, a layered service provider is a, a feature that's unique to Microsoft's Windows implementation of of layer that runs up in the user's space. There's, you know, there's there's like user space and kernel space, and so there are, there are kernel drivers that run down there that interface with the hardware. Up in, in where the programs themselves run, in so-called user space, there are... There are DLLs that get loaded in order for user applications to talk to the network. Microsoft, in their uh, infinite wisdom, infinite wisdom, yes, created something called a layered service provider as a feature of Windows. What it allows you to do, essentially, is it allows any software, and of course there's no protection for this, no authentication, no notification, nothing. <laughs> it allows any software to insert itself as a shim in the networking traffic, sort of up in the user space. It's sort of a poor man's uh, network interface ability. The bad news is, Spyware is using this in order mm-hmm. to intercept browser and email traffic mm-hmm. and in to, to insert its own and basically play all kinds of games. So people like the AdAware guys have that they're like aware of this being another vector of attack for spyware, and they're now keeping an eye on sort of the the chain of processes in the the the, the so-called layered service provider stack because you're able to have multiple service providers that like sort of link to each other and bad stuff inserts itself in there. So essentially it's sort of one more one more vector. One more vector of of vulnerability that Windows has and um so apparently in, in this case maybe the 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 software was was buggy to this guy installed or he just has a lot of software like AdAware and Zone Alarm and Microsoft anti spyware that are all now watching the layer service provider stack for any changes and alerting him if something changes he he apparently installed something benign so he should say oh okay this thing is a layered service provider shim installing piece of software <laughs> now i know <laughs> so that's what it means wow and, you know there's a pattern here in the way microsoft works i mean essentially they're enabling without really thinking about it just putting these in that let people do anything they want 
Yes, I mean it, it's it's just the way they operate, the way they implement. For now, now in fairness, this is old stuff. It's still around, like so much other of Microsoft's old stuff, for the sake of forward compatibility. So, so this stuff has been around since before security was really an issue, which we could argue for Microsoft has only been in the last couple of years. So, you know, it's I don't know that they would do it this way now. One would hope they wouldn't, but we are stuck with it and the malware has found it and it's just a simple way for malware to get itself running in basically in every process that the user uses that communicates with the internet. Uh, this, this LSP stuff is potentially really bad. Hmm. Wow. Anthony from Albuquerque asks, I recently, did you have to look up Albuquerque when you typed that, by the way? I think I probably did. <laughs> I, I just put it into Google and, and Google says, did you mean this? You mean oh, Albuquerque? Yeah. <laughs> that is probably the single hardest city to spell. I recently relocated at my new place. I have a DSL connection with an ISP that is issuing private IP addresses. We're going to have to start limiting people to three or four acronyms per Huh. message here i have a dsl connection with an isp that is issuing private ip addresses this is that 192.168.1 to me i had to change my router configuration to issue 192.168.0. something in order to get online everything's working okay except BitTorrent. i'm thinking the isp is either actively throttling BitTorrent traffic which is very common now or preventing a good connection by not having the BitTorrent ports forwarded the way I have to on my own router i'm using azurius but my isp is not on their list of so-called bad isps I changed my BitTorrent port as also recommended by Azurius. That hasn't helped in my troubleshooting. I also discovered my dynamic DNS is no longer working properly as the IP it receives is an external IP on a router somewhere. Another, uh-huh. Probably another 192.168. Is there another way around this ISP's shenanigans to get Dyn DNS and BitTorrent working? Okay. How does this even work? Is This guy is hosed. The, the, the ISP is using a router to connect these other... They're not giving you a real IP address. That's exactly right, Leo. And, and and I've seen this before, and it's beginning to happen. ISPs, maybe, who can't get the, a large enough public IP space for all of their customers, they're beginning to run NAT themselves and then issue private space 192.168.x.y IPs to their customers. Now, this guy was able to get his router to work because he was smart enough to know that you have to have different networks on either side of the NAT router so that it's able to know which traffic to route across. So, for example, his, his ISP in, his, in this case was issuing 192.168.1.something, and his, that was the default subnet inside of his router. So he had to change that, and he was able to work. But he still has the problem that his traffic from his own use is is not going public until after it crosses his ISP's router. I can That's see a lot where, of issues coming out of something like well, that. Well, you can't run servers. Right. You see, uh, 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 his his um his BitTorrent client is trying He's to a be server. a server right. exactly, and and there's no way to run a server without explicit port forwarding and and the ISP can't forward ports to everyone they would only be able to go to one particular user he wouldn't I mean, be able to use video chat either right i mean there's nope, a lot of I, things I, that would break 
as I said, this guy is seriously hosed. I mean, well, this, I mean, is, this, is, this is why is, ISPs don't do this very common. I mean, you'd think they, this would be in their advantage to do it, but it, but it caused so many problems. It's convenient for the ISP, but basically you end up being a client only to the Internet, and all kinds of stuff will no longer work. So complain to the ISP, and if they don't fix it, you're going to have to go somewhere else. I would, I, if I, you, if I would go somewhere else if there's any way he can change ISPs. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the first. I just, you know, don't even consider complaining. I, I can see a small rule. ISP doing this because they're you know they're small they don't they don't have a big enough pool um, essentially you know they become kind of like a you know in house uh, you know like renter of of access but you can't do I mean a lot of things break a lot of things yeah it's an, uh, yeah all right Chris Peterson our last our last question Chris Peterson of Billings Montana asks can anyone's machine can anyone's machine just be hacked. During an argument online the other day, a belligerent kid said he was just going to hack into my machine and he was going to get what he wanted from it. And so there, I assumed he was bluffing. He didn't seem that smart, but could a really talented hacker uh, crack into anyone's machines? In other words, is any machine vulnerable? Um, The good news is no. No. Uh, It's not like in the movies where, you know, you just decide, okay, we're going to go hack into this computer system somewhere and and get whatever we want to from it. I mean, the, the, the bad news is many systems are so complex that there are ways in. But, you know, in some cases, that requires social engineering, where you get the secretary of the boss who's out of town to flip his keyboard upside down and read you his password on the bottom of his keyboard or, or something like that. I mean, right. there there can be ways in, but but fundamentally, it's, it's not as if all computers have sort of like have a soft boundary. And if you just poke at them hard enough, you'll be able to, you know, stick your spike all the way through their crust. I mean, right, it, it just right. doesn't work that way. Good. So that's the good news. On the other hand, there are so many holes and exploits in uh, operating systems these days that there's no guarantee that you're safe either. Yeah, you've been watching, of course, OS X has been having its, right. you know, share of, of trouble and Safari and so forth. Yeah. Although, like, you, know, you know, it's funny, as, they've been talking about OS X having problems because it has a lot of old Unix programs and Apple hasn't been assiduous about making sure the patches are applied. But I haven't seen any widespread exploits. I mean, uh, it seems more theoretical. Yeah. But it's something to keep in mind always that, uh, you know, unless you are actively hardening a system... There's always the chance that you're uh, that you're hackable, and and if you're a good hacker, you probably have in your toolkit a few of these well-known exploits that are out there. Well, and I would say if or nothing not so else, well-known. yeah, I would say if nothing else, the notion of needing to keep your software patched and current has now arrived for Mac users the way it arrived years before for oh, yeah. for for Microsoft Windows users. Although most I think most Mac users is kind of by default turned on that you there's a software update feature. They did it before uh, Microsoft right. did it and it's automatic and I think most Mac users have it turned on. I think there's a bigger issue and I was guilty of this. Uh, it, you know, we kind of tend to run as administrator uh, which of course if you've ever used a Unix uh, system you know is verboten you never run as root. But both Windows and Mac users tend to run as administrator. On Windows, you almost have to because there's so many programs that won't run otherwise. On the Mac, you can, in fact, very conveniently, very easily run as a limited user. Well, in fact, in, in from the Unix world, the the idea of being root, as it's called, is so powerful oh, yeah. that, that from day one, programs have all assumed they would not be running as root. They would create their own, like a news account or an Apache account or whatever that, that would run with limited resources. So so the, the heritage of Unix has that fundamental security 
awareness advantage right. where you know things really do work just fine not being root and you only briefly have to do that from time to time for like special you know true maintenance things whereas as you say leo and under windows all kinds of stuff is just you know broken the heritage you, is the opposite assuming that you have all yep. power exactly yeah. and that's exactly the difference it's just you know how how people are used to working or programs are used to working steve we are we are through the questions well done. I think we will resume then next week. We'll um, we'll come back with our answer to uh, this week's puzzler brain teaser. Mm. Why can't you send messages back and forth using that double lock approach with a one-time pad? Or can you send them back and forth? Does that work in order to give you a really cool uh, encryption system. It seems to it, me that if it worked, that it would be more widely used. So I'm thinking there's so, got to be something wrong with that. I and so the question like, is what, you know, <laughs> uh, people can think about it what for a week be? and we'll give them the answer at the beginning of the show next week. Whatever and I'll talk to you, uh, talk to you then, Leo. Well, oh, don't forget. And, go ahead. No, I was going to say that we, we, we're going to talk about the second family of symmetric we ran out of time last time and all we were talking about so far it's what's called stream ciphers that is the idea being that you have a message and for example you use a ran a pseudo random number generator or even a one-time pad to generate a stream of randomness that you mix in with your message to create a, a a stream that cannot be decrypted and then you reverse the process to get it back that's one family of encryption the uh, the alternative is called a symmetric block cipher and that's really i mean there we're going to see um when I quickly run through a list of them, like Two Fish and Blowfish and AES and Rheindahl and 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 those things, those are things people have heard of, and that's those are really today's workhorse encryption. So that's for next week. That's for episode thirty-three. Meanwhile, reminding uh, everybody that they can get uh, sixteen kilobit versions of this and all our other Security Now podcasts, plus transcripts, thanks to Elaine, on Steve's site, grc.com/slash/securitynow.h. TM. Uh, this program is, and all of Steve's labors are brought to you by his fabulous program, SpinWrite, which is the ultimate disk maintenance and recovery utility. I just recommended this the other day to somebody. It's a, oh, cool. a must-have uh, if, you, if you work with hard drives. And you can find out more about that now at SpinWrite.info. Wow. A brand new site uh, just, for, <laughs> just, for, just for you. SpinWrite.info. We also want to thank our good friends at AOL for providing us with the bandwidth and for broadcasting this show on their podcast channel on AOL Radio. That's AOL.com slash podcasting. And thank our donors who make this show possible. Without you, we couldn't produce Security Now and all the other fine twit.tv podcasts. If you're not yet a regular contributor, we encourage you to visit the site, twit.tv, and press one of those donation buttons. A donation as little as $2 a month really makes a big difference in uh, keeping us running and, uh, frankly, Now's a good time. We, our expenses are high, and uh, and I'd sure appreciate a little help here. So that's twit.tv, T-W-I-T.tv, and you'll see those PayPal uh, donate buttons right there on the front page. Steve Gibson, we'll see you next week. Right, Leo. Thanks. Take care. We'll see you all next Thursday for another Security Now. Security Now.